you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to turn with me to Jude, the book of Jude, second to the last book in the Bible. If you go to Revelation, you've gone too far. You go back one book. In fact, you could just go back one chapter. Jude is one chapter. I'm going to be reading this morning from verse 1 through 11. We're going to focus our attention um, as we continue to work through the book of Jude. We're going to focus our attention this morning on verses 8 through 11. But I'll start at the beginning. This is the word of God, Jude chapter, uh, Jude chapter 1, verse 1. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James... To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. Here ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Let's pray. We come to you this morning, Lord, a weak and a needy people, needing your grace, Lord. Um, I need your grace to be able to preach your word. We, as your people, that are listening here, whether here in this building or outside or over live stream, we need your help to hear it in the power of the Spirit. And so, Lord, I am asking that you would accompany us this morning, granting us the grace that we need to hear the living voice of Christ, not my voice, not my opinions, but your word and your truth, and that, Lord, that you would be so gracious to us to apply it to our hearts. We depend on you for it. It's in your son's name we pray. May he be glorified. Amen. So on April 13th of this year, no more than two weeks ago, eight-year-old Nona was riding her bike through a nearby neighborhood in Prescott Valley, Arizona. 
She was probably doing what any other eight-year-old child would be doing, riding a bike, probably out exploring, maybe going to a friend's house. But little did she know that her plans were about to be interrupted in a really big way. You see, an unidentified man in a black truck spotted Nona on her bike. And in a desperate attempt to kidnap her, he stopped his truck in the middle of the road and he opened his door and he reached out his hand to grab Nona. As unsuspecting Nona inched closer and closer, it seemed that her kidnapping was inevitable. That is, until a loud voice echoed through the street saying, Run! 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 You see, a bystander which had watched the entire situation unfold before his eyes, he warned Nona before she was taken captive. And by God's grace, she heeded his warning, and thankfully, she did not become the next statistic. It's a true story. Just as Nona's experience reminds us that there are kidnappers in the world that would kidnap children, so the book of Jude reminds us there, there are spiritual kidnappers that seek to infiltrate the church and to lead God's people astray. And just as Nona's story would, that Nona herself, she would have become prey to her kidnapper if she didn't have someone there to, to warn her. So we as the church, we will become prey to spiritual kidnappers if we do not heed the warnings that our Lord Jesus Christ has given to us in his word. And today we'll look at that in the book of Jude. I'll ask you the same question as I did last time. Do you think that you are perceptive enough to be able to identify an apostate if they showed up here in the midst of Grace Church? Do you think that you are perceptive enough that you can identify every apostate that shows up on your TV screen or on your radio or in a podcast? See, the truth of the matter is, is some apostates are really easy to identify whereas others are not. I mean, we can see that in the book of Jude. The spiritual kidnappers that had made their way into the church that Jude is writing to, Jude says that they had done so unnoticed. They flew in under the radar. It wasn't apparent, at the beginning at least, that they were apostates. Apostates, you see, know how to talk the Christian language. They know enough of their Bibles in order to carry out their covert operations and to lead people astray, and that's why they're so dangerous. So how can we equip ourselves as God's people so that we do not become the next statistic of spiritual kidnappers of apostates? Well, the answer is we need to know what they look like. We need to know and what they look like. We must be careful to pay attention to the spiritual portrait of an apostate that God has given to us in his word and most specifically in the book of Jude. And we're going to continue to do that this morning. But before we jump into the text today, a little bit of a refresher of the context of Jude. You may recall that Jude, we said, was most likely the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he had learned of a dangerous situation that was growing in a local church that he cared deeply about. See, apostates, men who had uh, defected from Christ, men who had turned away from Christ, had infiltrated the church and they were spreading and living out their false teachings in the midst of the congregation. Left unchecked, these men were like ticking time bombs that if, if they continued to tick, we, they would be ready to explode at any moment and bring that church to ruin. And that would be the same case for this church. And so Jude picked up his pen to write one of the most alarming letters in all of the New Testament where he details 
the impending judgment that's to come upon the apostates. And he also shares with us as the responsibility of the church for us to resist and to counteract their corrupting influence. How are we to do that? Well, Jude tells us. He says, you must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That is, to battle for, to guard, to protect the faith that had already been delivered by God through the apostles and to us, the church. That is the, what we know today, by the way, as the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. To not let it be corrupted, to not let it be perverted, to not let it be compromised, to strike down every lie of an apostate with the truth of God's word. That's Jude's clarion call to the church that he's writing to. to. That's Jude's clarion call to this church at Grace Church in Swansburg, North Carolina. Last time we dipped our toe into that wa- po- that, the water of that part of Jude's letter where he began to uh, uh, expose uh, the characteristics of apostates. And we looked at three of those signs in verse 8 last time. You may remember that we saw that the first sign was that apostates rely on another source of revelation, not the Word of God. Second sign is that they legitimize sexual sin. The third sign was that they reject God's authority by rejecting His Word. And today, we will continue to see those signs, sign number four and sign number five in verses 8 through 11. The main point I want you to carry away today, same one as last time I I preached, is this, that apostates can be difficult to identify. Therefore, know the signs of an apostate and stay alert. And stay alert. I want you to see sign number four today in verses 8 through 10. Here's what sign number four is. Apostates are careless with evil spirits or they are careless with demons. Look at verse 8 with me. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and here it is, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Now, a little bit of disclaimer this morning. This is a difficult passage. This is a passage that many faithful, trustworthy men, Bible expositors have come to uh, differing conclusions on. And so I want to just go ahead and say that, that that there are different interpretations of this passage out there by very faithful men. I'm going to share with you what I believe it is. And just so you know, I'm not falling out of line with faithful men, R.C. Sproul and people like uh, John MacArthur actually come to this same conclusion about this passage as well. So with that disclaimer in mind, let's ask the question, what in the world are glorious ones? And what does it mean to blaspheme them? One of the key principles to interpreting difficult passages is this, you must look around the context of the passage to see if there's any light that's shed on the difficult parts that, that are just unclear. And so as we keep reading in verse 9, we actually see some light being shed. Jude is in verse 9, what he does is he presents a simple contrast between what the apostates were doing, that is, they were blaspheming the glorious ones, and what Michael the archangel did, that is, he did not blaspheme the glorious ones. And here's what it says, verse 9. And when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. See, this is an episode that you might not be familiar with. This is an episode that you'll find only here in the Bible. It's a most likely a factual story, a true story. But instead of being written down in the Bible, it was was transmitted orally through the Jewish community. 
And very, very years and years and years and years later, it was finally written down in a uh, uninspired apocryphal book known as the Assumption of Moses. Now that doesn't make the Assumption of Moses an inspired book that should be in our canon of Scripture, but it is a factual story that was written in an uninspired apocryphal book. So though it's something that may be unfamiliar to us, it is not something that would have been unfamiliar to the recipients of Jude's letter, which is why he uses it to make a point. And his point is this. Michael is a holy angel. He's not a fallen angel. He holds the highest position in the hierarchy of angels as an archangel. And he's having a dispute, an argument with the devil, that is Satan, who is a fallen angel. And even though Michael with all of his authority and all of his power, even though his, it, it far exceeds that of, of Satan, not even he dares to blaspheme him. Not even he dares to act as if he has the authority to declare Satan's final judgment. Instead, he leaves that to God by stating, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord will judge you. Jude's points this. If Michael the archangel whose authority and power far exceeds that of the apostates, if not even he will dare to blaspheme one of the glorious ones, that is Satan, then how arrogant and careless it is that the apostates do blaspheme glorious ones. And so Satan, along with the other angels who fell with him, I believe are the glorious ones that Jude is referring to here. Glorious ones are fallen angels, demons, evil spirits, now, maybe you're not convinced, and that's okay, because another key principle to interpreting difficult passages is to see if there is any other passages that happen to speak on this same subject, and guess what? There is. 2 Peter chapter 2. Now, 2 Peter, by the way, was probably written before Jude. Jude probably used a lot of Peter's material from chapter 2. You'll notice there's a lot of similarities between those two books. And I think the way it works is this. I think Peter is predicting what's to come. He's saying, hey, apostates are coming, and here's what they're going to look like. And Jude in his letter is saying, hey, what Peter predicted is happening. The apostates are here, and they're in your church. They're doing exactly what Peter said that they would do. So let's listen to what Peter has to say about the apostates blaspheming glorious ones. Here's what he says in verses 10 and 11. He says, bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now listen. Whereas angels, that is holy angels, though greater in might and power than the glorious ones, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So here's, here, here's the thought process. If holy angels are not pronouncing a blasphemous judgment against the glorious ones then it stands to reason that holy angels are not the glorious ones, right? Not only that, when you take this passage and you take it alongside Jude's illustration of Michael not blaspheming Satan, one of the glorious ones, I believe the evidence leads to the glorious ones referring to Satan and demons. And so apostates blaspheme demons. Well, that's great that we got figured, that, figured out. So now what does that mean? What does it mean that apostates blaspheme demons? Well, the Greek word here is blasphemousin. Why did I say that out loud? So you can, you can just see how good I am at pronouncing Greek? No. 
I say it out loud so you can see that what the ESV is doing is they're translating more of a word-for-word translation. Blasphemusen, blaspheme. But some of the other Bible translations uh, draw out the meaning of the word in their translations. And so I want to give you some of that. I think it's helpful for us. The King James Version says this, that blaspheme is translated in that, those versions into speak evil. The NASB says this, to speak abusively. The NIV, heap abuse on. And so at a very basic fundamental level, to blaspheme demons means to abuse or to belittle them with speech, to treat them carelessly, to imagine that you have a power over them that you do not. You know that even though the demons are fallen, they still retain some vestiges of their original glory? For instance, part of their original glory is they were extremely powerful. Guess what? They're still extremely powerful, except now their power is directed towards Christ and His church. See, demons are not to be toyed with. The seven sons of Sceva in Acts chapter 19 learned that lesson, didn't they? If you remember that story, what happened there, they attempted to use Jesus' name as a magic formula in order to cast out a demon. And do you remember what happened? Well, they got a good old-fashioned hiney whooping, didn't they? The demon-possessed man jumped on, jumped on them, and they ended up being beat, having the fool beat out of them, and were left naked and wounded. See, demons are not to be toyed with, but apostates carelessly toy with demons. Peter says this in in verse 10. He says, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. In dealing with demons, they are not cautiously reserved. They're bold, he says. He says they don't tremble. There's no fear. There's no awareness of the danger of dealing with evil spirits. You know what the scary part is? This kind of thing of carelessness with demons is rampant in some sectors of the church today. The leaders of some churches, and I use that in quotes, are encouraging their hearers to have dangerous encounters with demons, both knowingly and unknowingly. Think about knowingly. Think about leaders who encourage their people to directly engage with evil spirits, to talk to them, to exercise authority over them give you an example. Listen to what Joyce Meyer has to say. As you recognize a lie to your mind, always defend yourself out loud. That means speaking to Satan and the evil forces out loud, binding them in the name of Jesus and forbidding them to lie to you and to use your mind. When you catch a lie to your mind, use this prescription regularly. Talk to demons regularly. And you will regain peace, your memory, restful nights, and the ability to concentrate and comprehend. Do you know where you'll find this prescription in the Scriptures? Nowhere. Nowhere are we instructed to speak to demons. Nowhere are we instructed to bind demons in the name of Jesus. On the contrary... In dealing with demons, we are given our prescription in Ephesians chapter 6 and 1 Peter chapter 5. What are we to do whenever our enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour? We are to resist him, firm in the faith, 
That means to fill our minds with God's Word and trust it. Well, what does that look like? Well, it looks like Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the armor of God, right? The shield of faith to extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so we are called to be using the weapons that God has given to us, which is the Word of God and prayer. See, the only thing that we should be speaking in the presence of demons is, is we should be speaking to God in prayer. And we should be speaking out loud. If we're going to speak out loud, it should be the Word of God. Beware of leaders who would encourage you to speak to demons. It's careless and it's dangerous and it's disobedient and it's scary. But it's not near as scary as leaders who encourage people to uh, have unknowing encounters with demons. What do, what do I mean by that? Well, to explain this, I want to I highlight a very, very popular church. And I'm just going to give a disclaimer before I, before I mention the name of the church. And the disclaimer is this. Whenever you hear myself or Jeff or someone else up here calling out names of churches or calling out leaders within the church, please know that we don't do that because we think that we're better than them, that we have some self-righteousness and arrogance and hatred towards them. No, we, we don't. We do it because we love you. We love you enough that we want to call out people who we think will lead you astray. See, one of the primary responsibilities of a pastor is to, is to protect Christ's sheep from wolves. And so whenever we see a wolf that we think fits the picture that we see in Scripture, we want to say, hey, guys, there's a wolf. Be careful. Beware, because they're already leading lots of people astray. And so with that disclaimer in mind, the name of the church I want to mention is Bethel Church out of Redding, California, led by Bill Johnson and their school, uh, which is called the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, led by Chris Vallotton. According to the scriptures, how do you differentiate the activity of the Holy Spirit versus the activity of demons? Well, fundamentally, one of, one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is that he puts, when he is active, he puts a big spotlight on Jesus. You see that in John chapter 15 and 16. That's what Jesus said he would do. And so when he is active, the Holy Spirit is active, Jesus is placed in the center, he is glorified. Another fruit of the Holy Spirit you know your fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, is self-control. Self-control, not chaos, not being out of control. But the fruit of the activity of demons that we see in the Scriptures is the opposite of that. There is a distraction from Jesus, and there is a, it creates a lack of self-control, people being out of control, chaos. And so you can see these two fruits displayed quite clearly if you remember the demon-possessed man of the Gerasenes. Right? Jesus pulls up in the boat onto the shore and encounters the demon-possessed man. Do you remember how it described him before Jesus cast the demon out? He was out of control. He was chaotic. He couldn't be subdued. It says that the, the, the demon seized him, and he would cut himself with sharp stones. But then, do you remember what happened after Jesus cast out the demon by the Holy Spirit? It says that he was sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind. The man was under control. He was no longer out of control. And then do you remember what happened? Jesus sent him to his fellow countrymen and he proclaimed the name of Jesus to him. See, that's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Self-control and placing a spotlight on Jesus. Nowhere in the scriptures do you see chaotic or uncontrolled behavior 
resulting from the activity of the Holy Spirit. You only see that with demons. So now that you know that, or reminded of that, I want you to listen to an article published on the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry website that describes a common occurrence at Bethel, which is called, they term, Holy Spirit drunkenness. Listen to what they describe, and I want you to discern if this is from the Holy Spirit or from demons. Drunkenness is a term to describe the manifestation of how someone looks and feels in the presence of the Holy Spirit that can appear nearly identical to being drunk on alcohol. Students should encounter God personally more than they learn facts about Him. And there are countless ways to interact with Him and to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit. What makes drunkenness so unique and important is that it's a way to experience God that completely bypasses our practical understanding. Though it can look intense and even chaotic, it ministers directly to our spirits and through us to others. Anne, who is a Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry student, she describes her experience this way. She says, I was offered the chance to take a trip with a Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry missions team to Mexico this spring. And I was jokingly warned beforehand, this is a very drunk trip. Despite feeling really uncomfortable with that, I knew that the Lord wanted me on the trip and that He had something specific for me if I would say yes to whatever He was doing. One day early in the trip, a group of the students who were already very drunk in the Spirit gathered around me and encouraged me to join them. I was really uncomfortable, but I'd been around enough people drunk in the Holy Spirit that I knew how to take it, wait it out, and stay safe in the midst of that craziness that changed, uh, stay, stay safe in the midst of the craziness, changed the way I experienced the Holy Spirit and actually led to me getting drunk with them later that night. In a separate article, Andy Peck, writing not in opposition of, 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 of Bethel, but in support of Bethel, describes the Holy Spirit drunkenness he witnessed at Bethel this way. He said, Some broke out into uncontrollable laughter, some shed tears. And others were convulsed by shrieks and groans. Let me ask you, does this sound like the work of the Holy Spirit or does this sound like the work of demons? Yeah, the spotlight is not on Christ and the result is not self-control but chaos. Yet in their ignorance, Bethel and its leaders attribute these manifestations to the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not 100% sure that this is technically blaspheming demons or not, but I tend to think that it might, and here's why I say that. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in Mark chapter 3 that blaspheming the Holy Spirit is? I'm going to solve some, some issues for some of you who have struggled with that passage for a while right now. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit in that passage, if you look at it, is attributing the clear works of the Holy Spirit and continually attributing those works as to say that they're actually Satan's works, that he's the one that's doing those. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Well, do you know what it is when, probably is when you do the opposite of that? When you attribute the clear works of demons and Satan and you attribute those to the Holy Spirit? Well, that's probably blaspheming demons. I'm not sure that that's the case, but regardless of whether it is, it is certainly in that vein of leading people into a careless encounter with demons. That's what Bill Johnson and Chris Vallotton are doing, and guess what? Demons love it. 
They love it because people think they're having an encounter with God, but in reality, they're having under the power and control of the demonic. And Bethel, they feed this. See, it's like a spiritual addiction. And it leaves people longing for more and more and more of these spiritual highs. And Bethel feeds it. They say the spiritual addiction is fed at Bethel with their school of supernatural ministry that purports to teach students how to have even deeper encounters with God like this. It's fed with something that they call fire tunnels, which is where two lines of people line up and people walk down the middle of the uh, uh, people tunnel, which they call a fire tunnel, and people are prophesying over them and laying hands on them in order to try to invoke a drunk encounter with God like this. It's fed with occult practices like supposedly uh, encountering God through a destiny card reading, which is nothing more than a repackaged version of tarot cards that you'd find at your local psychics. See, that's what Bethel does. They take New Age occult practices and then they try to reclaim them to be used in Christianity. And that is scary. It's scary because of what God had told Israel before they warned Israel about before they entered the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He says this, God says this, warning Israel, Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them, that is, the people of the land. After that, they have been destroyed before you, and that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods, that I may also do the same? You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abominable thing that the Lord hates, they have done for their gods. For they even burn their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods." Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. You shall not add occult practices. You shall only do what God has commanded in His Word. Sadly, Israel did not listen. And sadly, churches like Bethel are following in their footsteps. Let's just ask the question, why do they do this? Why does Bethel's leader, leaders lead people to have these unknowing encounters with demons? And why do people follow them? Well, Jude tells us why in verse 10. He says this, But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. So the first reason they do it is because out of ignorance. They don't know what they're doing. They don't understand how dangerous it is. And in Bethel's case, they don't understand that they are dealing with demons and not with God. And the second reason we find in the remainder of verse 10, and it says this, And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. What do animals understand instinctively? Their appetites, their passions, their desires. That's why you can place something that appetizes animals in a trap, and they'll go for it every time. See, That's what they're driven by. And apostates and those who follow them, they're like that. They're driven by their appetites, their passions, their desires, and not the word of God. This is the second reason why Bethel's leaders unknowingly lead people into these unknowing encounters with demons and why people follow them. Because it's giving them something that they want. It's satisfying an appetite, at least temporarily. Whether that appetite is for a sense of power or pleasure, or importance, or belonging, or something else. See, one of the things we've been pointing out in our study of Jude is is that uh, what what apostates offer is enticing. It's not boring, it's enticing. 
And you can see here how enticing it would be to be told that you could have an emotionally charged, deep encounter with God that will leave you feeling closer to Him than you've ever felt before. See, it's no surprise why Bethel's attracting so many people. But sadly, sadly, what they are offering is not of God and what they are experiencing is not of God. And their leaders won't listen to godly rebukes. They and their followers are just like those unreasoning animals driven by their appetites into a trap that an enemy who loves to masquerade as an angel of light has set for them. Christian, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. Jude is telling us right here that one of the signs of an apostate is that they are careless with demons. If you were involved with Bethel in any way, I urge you and plead with you to run. To run. They are careless with demons. If you're involved with anyone that is, encourages being slain in the Spirit, run. You are dealing with demons. If you're involved with anyone that tries to tell you and, and that tries to lead you into an encounter with God in a practice that you don't find in the scriptures, run. They are probably dealing with demons. You see, this is for your protection, Christian. It's for your protection. Christ is sketching a portrait of spiritual kidnappers so that you and I will not be led astray. Stay alert. Stay alert. Sign number five, apostates despise righteousness. That's in verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. In verse 11, we see Jude connecting the apostates to three cursed individuals from the Old Testament. That's Cain, Balaam, and, and Korah. The apostates are following in their footsteps. They're living in the same kinds of sins. And Jude, in Old Testament prophet fashion, doesn't sugarcoat it, but pronounces a curse upon them. He says, woe to them. The wrath of God abides on them because of their Cain-like wickedness, their Balaam-like wickedness, their Korah-like wickedness, and it will sweep them to hell on judgment day. I'll say it again like I said last time. You do not want to be found following an apostate when Jesus Christ returns. Be careful, pay attention to the uh, signs that the Lord has given to us. Now, we'll be looking at Balaam and Korah the next time, but today I want you to see that like Cain, apostates despise righteousness. Now, the, the account of Cain and Abel, that can be found in Genesis chapter 4, a very, very familiar story. After Adam's fall into sin, he and Eve had two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain was a worker of the ground and Abel was a keeper of the sheep. In verse 3, we see this. It says that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Notice just the details of the two men's offerings that they brought to the Lord. Cain's is very generic. He brought of the first fruits of the ground. Whereas Abel's is very specific. He brought the firstborn of his flock and he brought uh, the fat portions with him. And so Abel brought the first and best of what he had. Cain, on the other hand, he didn't. Then we keep reading, and it says, And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. That is, he accepted it. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. He rejected it. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face falling, fallen? 
If you do well, will you not be accepted? I think this question assumes that God had probably already instructed Cain and Abel as to what was pleasing to him in worship. If you do well, if you do what I told you to do, will you not be accepted? But Cain didn't want to worship God God's way. In fact, he despised God's worship or righteous worship. How do I know that? Well, first, if we assume that God had indeed instructed Cain and Abel as to what was pleasing, Cain decided to set those instructions aside and to bring whatever he wanted. We see that going on a lot in churches today. I encourage you to come to our 915 classes. That is a quick plug for that. Second, even if he hadn't instructed Cain and Abel on worship, Cain's response showed that he despised righteous worship, right? So instead of being humbled and in repentance, bringing the acceptable offering that God had required of him, what did he do? He stewed, he got mad, he was angry, and he ended up murdering his brother. Is that what the connection is between the apostates and, and, and Cain? Is that they were both murdering people? I don't think that was the case. No, we don't get any indication of that in, in Jude. So what was the connection? I think John gives us a clue in 1 John 3.12, speaking of Cain. He says this, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. So Cain hated Abel's righteous deeds. They were like a spotlight exposing his guilt, and in an attempt to extinguish that spotlight that exposed his guilt, he murdered his brother. So I think the connection is this. Like Cain, apostates despise righteousness. They hate it. They, it chafes against them. It goes against the grain of their unconverted hearts. And just so you know, just so I can be clear, what we're talking about here is a heart attitude a heart attitude that hates righteousness. You can see this in verse 16. Jude calls these apostates grumblers. So like apostate Israel in the wilderness, they grumble against God and His righteous commands. You can see it in verse 18 where they're called scoffers. They scoff at what God has revealed as righteous in His sight. In fact, if you take a look at just about any apostate in the Bible, you'll see this quality. They hate righteousness. From Cain to Korah to the many apostate kings of Israel to Judas Iscariot who betrayed the Lord Jesus, they despised righteousness. They despised God's way. Now, certainly time constrains us this morning to be able to rehearse all the different ways that apostates despise righteousness. I mean, if you just took the one little category of God's moral standards, we could be here for the rest of the day. We've seen that already in the book of Jude, especially in regard to sexual righteousness. What's righteous in, in regard to sexual activity in God's sight? We've already seen that. I won't go through that sermon again. But I want you to, to point out two areas of righteousness that apostates tend to be hostile towards, to be on the lookout for. The first one is this. Apostates are hostile towards the supreme authority of God's word. They're hostile towards the supreme authority of God's word. Spurgeon said this in regard to apostates. He said, The first step astray is a want of or a lack of adequate faith in the divine inspiration of the sacred scriptures. No faith, in other words, no faith that the scriptures are God's word. When my wife Renee and I, when we lived in Louisville, Kentucky, we had just moved there and we went to a Walmart and we encountered an elderly gentleman in a wheelchair and started to have a conversation with him and learned that he had been a long-standing member and still was a member of the United Methodist Church. I sensed that I needed to share the gospel with him, and so I started at creation, and I happened to mention Adam and Eve. 
and you would have thought that I had just slapped his mama in the face with how offended he was. He said, you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, do you? I said, yeah, I, sh I sure do. But it, as we continued to talk, it became clear that he didn't just, dis just despise the historical accounts in the Bible. He despised the very fundamental doctrines of God's Word. He started to talk about how humanity is basically good and not basically sinful, and all that we have to do is look inside of ourselves and improve, and we can make heaven on earth. Where did that come from? Well, obviously not the Scriptures, but just speculating. It probably came from the leaders of His church. You see, one of the fruits of, of the doctrine of Scripture that has infiltrated the ranks of the United Methodist Church is it comes from a, a theologian, a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth. Barth proposed that this Bible that I have in my hand is not the Word of God. This Bible is not the Word of God, but that it, it becomes the Word of God only when it is proclaimed by the living human voice of the church. Now, that's a little bit confusing, but what it boils down to is this, that the authority is not here but the authority is in the interpretation of the one preaching it or the church preaching it. So with that subjective interpretation of Scripture, you can easily see how this gentleman could be led astray to believe all of the errors that he so passionately embraced. Now, was he an apostate? Yeah, probably. But more importantly for our conversation today is that he had probably been led into his apostasy by the apostate leaders of his church, which is so important for us to beware of people who are apostates or people who are hostile to God's words because chances are they, could, they are probably apostates. The second area that apostates are hostile towards in regard to righteousness is the biblical gospel. Now, I remember R.C. Sproul one time accounting a, a lecture that he once gave. And in this lecture, he was explaining the atonement of Christ. That is, behind the bloody, gruesome, crucifixion of Christ, that a payment for the sins of His people was being made. That divine wrath was being satisfied by the payment that Jesus was making. And in the course of this his lecture, as he was in the middle of it, a man in the back of the auditorium yelled out in anger and he said this, That is barbaric! Dr. Sproul startled. He asked him, What did you say? The man said, That's barbaric! Dr. Sproul, you can imagine him probably looking down and said, yes, it is barbaric. And then after a classic pregnant pause that we see often in R.C. Sproul, he probably looked up and said, but it was necessary. It was necessary. To the man in the crowd, the mere thought that his sin required such a costly and bloody payment was repugnant. He despised the biblical gospel. You know that you don't have to be as outspoken as this man to despise the biblical gospel. All you have to do is just be unmoved by it. Imagine a guilty criminal that's moments away from his deserved execution in the electric chair. As he waits, he hears the electricity in the room that he's about to go into come on. He hears the sizzle. And then he hears an agonizing scream. As he rounds the corner and looks in the chair that he was about to die in, he sees a corpse slumped over in the chair. And the executioner comes up to him and says, oh, Today is the best day of your life. 
That man has just accepted the guilt for your crimes, and he has died in your place. And after hearing this amazing news, the guilty criminal, he shrugs his shoulders and he says, I don't think I deserve the electric chair anyway. You see, his lack of gratitude for the undeserved grace that had been shown to him was evidence that he did not like. He despised the man's sacrifice in his place. It meant nothing to him. Are you moved by the gospel? Or is it just white noise to you? Have you come to the place that you see that you have a corrupted heart that spits out sin like a sprinkler spits out water continuously? That every day that passes, your crimes against God, they increase, they accumulate. The pile gets bigger and bigger and bigger. That He established today that He will judge you according to His righteous standard, which is the Ten Commandments. That He is so holy that even one violation of those Ten Commandments is worth and deserving of an eternity in hell. But that you are such a wretch that you have not just violated those commandments once, but you do it every single day of your life on multiple counts. That there is nothing that you can do to erase your sin. Nothing that you can do to atone for them. No good work. No sacrament. No religious activity. Left to yourself, you are doomed. But God, who is rich in mercy, sent his son into the world he created in order to save a people. The eternal son of God became a man, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, fully God and fully man. He was born under the law. He was born under the Ten Commandments that you and, you and I have broken every single day of our lives. But from cradle to grave, he kept them in thought and word and deed, earning a perfect record of obedience, perfect righteousness, qualifying him to go to the cross to be able to pay for the sins of his people. When he was on the cross, he accepted responsibility for your sins and he took the death sentence, the infinite wrath of God that would have come crushing down on you in hell, came crushing down on his precious son. You broke the Ten Commandments. Jesus paid your death sentence. After he paid it in full, he said, it is finished. He laid down his life. His precious corpse was placed in a cold, dark tomb. But just as he predicted on the third day, his lungs filled with oxygen again. The blood started pumping again. The brain waves started firing again. And he blew the doors off of death by rising from the dead, an undeniable sign that it's all true. And he commands all people everywhere to turn from sin and to turn to him for free and full forgiveness of sins. For those who do, he gifts to them, yes, the forgiveness of sins, but the perfect obedience of Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ, as if you had never sinned before. He gives that to you, and on that basis, He declares you just in His sight, justified. And He has granted you eternal life if you do so. Does that gospel move you, or is it just white noise? Make no mistake, if it's just white noise... You despise the gospel. You despise the gospel. See, God has offered you this enormously amazing salvation, and you've been like that guilty criminal and said, eh, I don't think I, I need it. And that should scare you to death. 
It should scare you to death because you're still in your sins. And it means if you die right now that you're going to face God on judgment day and you are going to be the one accountable for your sins. And you are going to hear a verdict that is not, oh, I'm going to sweep your sins under the rug. You're going to be okay. You're going to hear the verdict, no, guilty, guilty. But the very patient God is saying to you today, as he once said to Israel, see now, I am setting before you today life and death. Life is repenting and trusting in Christ. Death is doing nothing. As we conclude this morning, our Lord has been so gracious to His people to continue to sketch a portrait of those who are the great enemies of our souls, apostates. As we think about how eight-year-old Nona was, was, was uh, how blessed she was to have an advocate who would point out her kidnapper before she was taken captive, how much more blessed are we to have a good shepherd that points out our apostate wolves that try to snatch our souls before we become their dinner? Today we have been shown that apostates are careless with demons and they despise righteousness. Now maybe you're listening this morning. And you realize today that you've been following those who bear these signs of apostasy. Perhaps today, through His Word, the Lord Jesus has left the 99 sheep in order to come to you, the one lost sheep, and rescue you. If that is so, heed His voice, turn back to Him, and let Him put you on His shoulders and carry you back to the true church, His true flock. For the rest of us, These signs are are, are not just meant for us to say, oh, that's great. No, it's meant for us. It's for our protection. One of the ways that the Lord Jesus Christ keeps His sheep is through warnings. Let us be a people who heed His voice. And let us remember that if we are Christ, that no power of hell, no scheme of man, not even an apostate, will ever pluck you from His hand until He returns or calls you home. Here in the love of Christ you stand. See, we don't have to worry because He will keep His sheep to the end. Despite every attempted assault on your soul, what a faithful shepherd we have. Let us follow Him as His faithful sheep. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we're grateful. We're grateful that this is Psalm 23 coming alive for us. How we have a shepherd who shepherds us through the darkest of valleys and he points out wolves so that we will be kept safe. Lord, let us be a people who listen and heed his voice. Let us be alert. We know, we know that there are many enemies out there that seek to infiltrate your church and lead your disciples astray. We can see that already happening on an enormous level in the world. Lord, we pray today that you would snatch back those who who have been led astray, that you would indeed go to them and rescue them and bring them back to your true church. I pray, Lord, for us to be alert. I pray for us to be aware of how to deal with these apostates whenever we do encounter them. And Lord, I pray that you'd continue to teach us in your word that we may be more faithful to you every single day of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.